Amen. Amen. Hey, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know where the books are. The large numbers are going to be chapters. The small numbers are going to be verses, 35 through 49. That's where we're going. Hey, let me, let me read the text for us, and then we will, we will walk through this together. Paul writes, or rather he asks the question, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. If what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Then there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. You'll remember as we've gone through this that the issue stemming and and, and resulting in this kind of occupying their time there in Corinth centered over the issue of of what it would be like to be resurrected. And as they considered it and, and they considered whether or not it's very important that some in their midst, at least, had decided that it wasn't at all important, that it introduced significant details to them, a terrific problem for them, and they would rather just dismiss with the whole idea of a bodily resurrection at all. And so they just kind of jettisoned the idea. So Paul had gone through and, and, and told them and been arguing that if it's not true for you and it's not true for your future, then it also will not have been true for Jesus. And that presents a terrific difficulty for you in terms of dealing with your sin. Now, really at root issue, as we look at this passage, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the kind of God they serve. You see, when you begin to think about it, they, they, they fundamentally misunderstood who God is and the kind of gifts that he gives. They presumed that, that, that God was the giver of meager gifts. They presumed that God was the God of ineffectual gifts, and they assumed uh, or, or rather, they, they presumed on his character, on the basis of this character, mischaracterization of the kind of gifts that he's given. Now, many of you, and if you came to, church, uh, to the church office the first couple of days this week, or you're on social media, you recognize that this past week I suffered, or celebrated rather, uh, <laughs> a birthday. 
And, and somehow, 40 snuck up on me, did not see it coming. It really came around the bend of 30, and it slapped me across the face, and it said, there you go, you schmuck. And so, and I'm still dealing with that. I'm still dealing with that. But uh, as is the case, often, uh, we had a party to commemorate uh, my birth. And, and we called it my 40th birthday party. And there people did uh, what they would do for you at your party. They sing for you and make you feel awkward. And, and, and they, they give you presents, right? They give you gifts. Some of them uh, give you gifts. Uh, some of them were still tracking down, trying to figure out why they were there. Nevertheless, and so they give gifts. And, and people give gifts to me on the basis of how well they either know or don't know me. And so I just want to go over just a couple of these gifts really quickly, okay? Uh, there was a couple that really showed up with the largest gift, the largest gift. And before they left, they said, look, we want you to open this in front of us and, because they know that I despise that, presumably. And so they gathered around and I heaved this, oh man, my back can still feel it. I heaved this box up and I sat it down and I began to unwrap it and, and it was a box of diapers. And I thought, that's, that's rather on the nose and helpful. Uh, but the size appears to be a little bit small. And they said, no, inside the box of diapers. And now I felt terrific relief that they didn't know everything about me. And so I opened up uh, the box of diapers, and, and lo and behold, I had 40 of these. <laughs> 40 of these. Right. They know I love apple juice when I preach. And, and they know that I'm not done preaching until I finish, and so sometime we're in for a long stretch. <laughs> for a long stretch. And so, you know, interestingly, uh, there's somebody else that, that dropped off something, and I don't know who they are. Uh, it was an anonymous gift. And so I, I found a bag, and inside the bag I found, well, let me just pick it up. I don't want to ruin the surprise so fast. I, I found something, and I found it to be odd. I found it to be curious, but we'll, we'll talk about the person that gave it later. And so uh, th this is what I found. <laughs> it's, a, it's a stuffed armadillo, right? It's a stuffed animal fashioned to look like an armadillo. And so I know this person loves my preaching. Or, or they're trying to tell me something about armadillos, they're trying to say they're, they're cute and cuddly, and they're wrong. Or they're trying to say they don't smell bad, and they're wrong again. Or they're trying to say this is the only armadillo you're ever going to catch, and it appears that they are in fact right. <laughs> appears they are in fact right. But I could tell in these gifts, man, these were gifts given by people that knew me, and it said something about our relationship. It communicated something to me about them. Now, these people here in Corinth, they effectively doubt the goodness of the giver. And we can see that in the questions they're asking. He says, someone are going to ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body are they given? Primary to their understanding of, of what it is to be a person was this split understanding that, that flesh is bad and spirit is good. Flesh is bad and spirit is good. And so for them, in their minds, any resurrection, any future that had a connection at all to the physical body had to be bad. It had to be bad. And so because God had said this is the way that it would be, and he said this is how it's going to work, their doubting of this reality also led to the conclusion that they thought God was a poor giver of gifts. Now this introduces a, a decided problem. You see, when they conceived of what this eventuality would look like, 
They imagined, you know, dear old Aunt Sue, who last week we entered into the ground, and they imagined at some point in the future, the heavens are going to split, and, and the, dead in, the dead in Christ will be raised, and Aunt Sue is just going to kind of claw her way to the surface. She's going to humble, uh, you know, walk along. Her arm's going to fall off because it's been rotting, and she's going to be going, ah, ah, And so they had this kind of walking dead reality that they envisioned. And this is what they presumed this good God would do. You see, in their misunderstanding of the resurrection, they fundamentally misunderstand God and the giver of good gifts. And I think we see that in verse 36 in Paul's response to them and his corrective for them. He describes them, he says, you foolish person. Now, biblically speaking, uh, the, the, the nomenclature of fool, the title of fool, is given for a really specific kind of person. It's not given for the person who's necessarily just not making wise choices, but it's more offering commentary on what they believe about God. Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart that there is no God. I want you to see this connection that Paul's making here. Paul says, look, this is primarily your questions. What kind of body are they going to have? How are they going to be raised? You want to understand the mechanics of this. But in seeking to strive to understand the mechanics of this, you doubt the goodness of God, the giver of all good and perfect gifts. And in this, you're disbelieving in the one and true God. They completely miss God's hope for the future. They completely misapply God's hope for them and his hopeful future for this group. So he says, you foolish person. So he calls them into this understanding. It's what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In essence, that, that how this is going to work is in a very real sense, and he's going to give us three illustrations, one from agriculture, one from biology, and one from astronomy. And so he starts with the idea of, of a seed, of a plant. Now, Paul's not, uh, you know, a botanist. He's not kind of describing it in terms of our 21st century understanding, but he's talking about the fact that seeds look decidedly different than plants. Is this true? Does everybody believe this? Maybe you've never planted anything. So in your mind, you think, if I want tomatoes, I need to run to Home Depot and, and look around for some little plump red seeds. You may find plump red seeds, but you're not going to grow tomatoes from them. Or maybe you think that if I want to grow watermelons, what I need to find is this delicious-looking green seed that if I were to bisect it, cut it in half, that it would have red flesh on the inside. That would be clever, clever and creative. And perhaps if I were God and I designed seeds, I would make them correspond to what they were going to look like. But he didn't do that. In fact, most of us, if I were to scatter seeds across the front and were to have a little bit of a quiz and say, all right, come up here and point out the seed that's going to grow to this, we would say, whoa, 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 I don't know. And so we just plant it. We ended up with a whole mess of corn. But, but as he's looking at this, as he's describing this, he says, look, this is how it's going to work. When you put the seed in the ground and, and, it, and it grows up, the seed in no way resembles the, the product, the output that you get. And so he's drawing them to this conclusion. Move away from your errant understanding of the resurrection and come into this renewed understanding that the body that he's preparing for us is so much more glorious than the body that we have today. And we would all look at that and say, amen. He says, that which he's preparing for you is so much greater and it's based on the goodness of this God and the greatness of his gifts. Look what he says in 38. He says, but the body that God gives, he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. There's this, this, this thing at work here, the providence of God, investing himself in the careful choosing and selecting of the body you currently have. 
Now, this leads some of us to terrific frustration. What do you mean this is the body that he chose for me? I'm only five foot 11, always wanted to break six feet. What do you mean this is the body that he chose for me? This is my difficulty. This is my impediment. We see that our bodies, in some sense, are, 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 are the prototype in the pale, impoverished version of what we will have in the resurrection. That our bodies will be recognizable. We'll walk down the street uh, in, in, in heaven, we'll, in this new heavens and the new earth, and we will recognize people say, oh, look, there's Peter. I recognize him. In some ways, he resembles the Peter that he is now. And Peter may be saying, oh, great. You know, I thought I'd be, I thought I'd be you know, quite a bit taller, and I just imagine larger muscles. Peter, it may happen. I don't know. Hold on to that promise, buddy. God has planned and purposed, and he has designed us to have bodies, and our bodies, in some sense, are a type to be revealed in the perfection of the resurrection. He talks about it in terms of biology. He wants us to understand that things are distinct and different, that there's varied purpose across this. So he says there, there, there are humans, and there's animals, and there's birds, and there's fish. And so God is, is calling us through the words of Paul to remember God's manifold display of his grace and his wonder and his creative endeavor in the Genesis account, right, where he creates uh, plants and where he creates animals and all these various things out of nothing, all displaying his power, all displaying his grace, all displaying his majesty. And they're all different. Then he turns to astronomy. He says, but there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another, another kind. So we have one glory, and those things that exist in the celestial realm have another. Those things that exist in the heavens have another. And so he moves through and he talks about them. He says, you got the sun, you got the moon, you got the stars, and even in the stars, they're radically different one from another. And so the body you have today is vastly different than the body you'll have in the future. In this, we see the goodness of our God. In this, we see his grace and the perfection of the gift that he offers to us. All these various things. So Paul uh, has moved through this, and, and, and listen to what he says in verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So it is with the re resurrection of the dead. In essence, see how different these things are? The seed from the plant, star from moon to sun. See how all these things are vastly different and they're vastly different from, from, from one to another? So it is with your future and, the, and, and your present. And so he begins to describe our present in terms of contrasting it with our future. Look at what he writes here, starting in verse 42. He says, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. We recognize, some of us more than others, we recognize the perishable nature of our bodies. Do you not see this? We see it in the people around us. Some of us experience it in our own failing health that our bodies are not going to last. The older we get, the more infirm we grow. So we get it, man. My, my body is wasting away, wasting away, but what is coming is going to be imperishable. It's not going to be able to be assailed by time or gravity. He says it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Now, Paul's not offering commentary here and saying that our bodies in and of themselves are dishonorable. This would play directly to the argument of those there in Corinth that said that flesh is bad. What he's saying is in the midst of this life, we suffer dishonor, we suffer humiliation. Some of us, more than others, some of us have terrific difficulties heaped upon us, and so we 
have difficulty imagining any future in which any part of our lives is vastly different or in any way changed. We imagine our pitiable current state being the manner and course that our lives will always be. And imagining a future in a recreated heaven, in a recreated earth, we assume if it's any better, it'll only be marginally better. But Paul contrasts them. He says, one is sown in dishonor, another one is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Probably about three years ago, I contracted the weirdest virus. I had, uh, I ran a fever, and then for several days after that, I had no strength in my hands. It was like I dipped my hands in kryptonite. I mean, it was the worst thing in the world, especially to be around people. I see you, especially to be around people. And, 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 and so we got in the midst of this, and we had some friends over from out of town who hadn't seen us in a while, and there were Legos on the ground. And I kid you not, I took Legos, and I'm like, no! I could not get the Legos to go together. And so I'm putting like Lego on top of Lego, like leveraging, you know, 200 pounds on it like this, and it slips in. I'm like, told you I'd get it. And then my wife pulls it apart and says, do it again. I'm like, I can't. But we know what it is to be weak. We know what it is to have that as our state. And luckily, my strength returned to my hands, if only marginally. But Paul says, in the future, you're going to have power. You're going to have greater ability than you do now. And then he just looks at our bodies in total. He says, one is natural, and what's coming is spiritual. Now think about that. How do we come to that? How do we understand that? One of the ways as I was kind of going through this and thinking about this is what Christ himself has done in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, we see Christ who lived in utter and complete perfection, sitting and existing with God from all eternity. And then Christ, in the midst of this, he rid himself of the imperishable and took on the perishable. He rid himself of glory and willingly took on dishonor. He rid himself of power and really readily assumed weakness. He took on and brought together perfection, being fully divine and fully human, all in one form. Why? So that we would see the reverse of what we currently experience. Christ, who was at the right hand of the Father, uh, reading in Philippians, said he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, greedily held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. He took on dishonor. He allowed himself to be humiliated, even to the point of death and death on a cross. So having gone in this reverse order of what our experiences are, Christ himself receives full exaltation. That at the name of Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But we think about it in terms of our current existence. I mean, how in the world does Christ coming to earth change my, my present reality? You see, when we read this passage in in, in a more wooden way, this is effectively what it's saying. What is being sown is perishable. And you experience this. You experience the perishability of your relationships and and your health and, and its integrity or its weakness. All these things are our current, present reality. And we're saying what is being sown is is perishable, it is weak, it it has no ability to change things. And we see this in our sickness and we see this in our relationships. 
We see how all these things are falling apart. Excuse me, are falling apart. We recognize that that our mental state and our physical state is just in a complete disarray. And some of us, we have no right ability to see the future because we're so stuck in the present. We have no right ability to, to recognize and to see the goodness that God holds for us because we're so blinded by how difficult we are experiencing things right here in the present. But in the goodness, this giver of all perfect gifts comes to us, and he doesn't just say you need to wait for the future to be raised. Another way of reading this, and the tense of it conveys this, that even though you are perishing now, you're being sown perishable now, you're being raised. You're being raised currently. God is in the process of raising you imperishable. God is in the process currently, right now, even in the midst of broken relationships, even in the midst of of husbands leaving wives, of wives leaving leaving husbands, of of parents stepping out on kids, even in the midst of these things, even in the midst of all the terror and, and, and dread of our current present reality, God is raising us. It's not that he looks at us and says, listen, listen, listen. You need to put off all hope. You need to just set it aside that nothing is going to be true for you until Christ comes back, even in the midst of all the horrors, the slings, the arrows, the difficulties of your current predicament. He is raising you. He's raising you. God, this giver of all good gifts, is not waiting for the end of time to bring this gift to you. He is bringing this gift to you today, even now in the person of Jesus. Paul goes on and he says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. We recognize that our current natural body, in its limitations, has no right ability to inherit our future. It has no ability to inherit our future. We can't, in our natural bodies, stand before a holy God and enjoy his presence. So our bodies must be changed. They must be transformed. We must exchange the perishable for the imperishable. We must take off the dishonor and humiliation, and we must be dressed in glory and dressed in honor. We must take off the weakness and allow power to be put on. Paul says, listen here in verse 46, verse 45 rather. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You get into Genesis 2-7. You get into Genesis 2-7, and and, uh, Moses is writing, or the author of Genesis, rather, is writing and describing in greater detail what it looks like for him to have been created, for Adam to have been created. And he says, God took the man of dust. And so God took from the ground Adam, and he fashioned him, and he stood in there. But even as he stood there, he had no life in himself. And it wasn't until Genesis 2-7, when God expirated, when he breathed into Adam, that he enlivened him, that he has made him alive. But Adam would die. He'd live a terrifically long life, but at the end of it, he would expire, he would die. That thing which separates Adam from the last Adam, which separates the first Adam from Christ's coming, is that Adam was alive, but Jesus Christ himself gives life. Jesus himself gives life. John writes about this in describing Jesus in John 1, 4, speaking of Jesus, says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus gives life. Adam was merely alive. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. First, we were alive in Adam. But we have have the ability, the possibility of being made alive in Christ. 
Verse 47 says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second is a man of heaven. In, in this real sense, the man of dust died. And the man of heaven came on and he took on flesh, John 1, 14. And he became this man of dust so that he might be put to death, so that he might ransom, save, atone for all of us, you and I, who are in the likeness of the man of dust. And we read that in, 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 in verse 48. It says, as was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. So we recognize what it is to live, in, live amongst a fallen humanity. We recognize what it is to struggle with sin. We recognize what it is to be sinned against. And we wait expectantly for the return of Jesus. Amen? Now listen, even in the midst of, of sowing what is perishable and even in the midst of experiencing episodically, occasionally, periodically, the goodness of our God, giving us a glimpse of what it is to be imperishable, giving us a glimpse of what it is to be powerful, giving us a glimpse of what it is to have hope in him. Even in the midst of these things, we wait for the final fullness when the good and perfect God will give a wonderfully perfect gift. And that gift is on a basis that he knows us far better than we could ever know ourselves and that in his knowledge of wayward, sinful humanity, he gives us the gift of Jesus and he's giving us that gift again. So he writes and says, just as we've been born in the image of the man of dust, all of humanity, every single one of us, is lost and in sin. Every single one of us. We suffer the consequences of sin. Some around us suffer the consequences of our sin. All of us are born in the likeness of the man of dust. But if you place your hope in Christ, if you would confess your sins, if you would ask him to come and to heal you and to make you whole, to forgive you and to restore you, you might bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's gift. This is the gift that he freely extends that we might come to know him, that our futures would look radically different. Paul speaks of this man of heaven and he speaks of our future resurrection. And he describes it this way in Philippians 3 and verse 21 of what he will do, how he's going to lead us to shed finally, fully that which is perishing, how he's going to lead us to divest ourselves finally of that which is weak, of that which is humiliated, of that which is solely natural. So Philippians Chapter 3 and verse 21, this is what he says he will do. That he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And he's going to do this by the, by the power that enables even him to subject all things to himself. I mean, our future is secure. And in him we have hope. And in him we have joy and life. Because today, even today, he is in the midst of raising us from death to life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for an opportunity to worship you. God, I'm thankful 
Your son Jesus surrendered his life that we might have life. God, would you give us hope today? God, would you be with those who are struggling? They have no right sense of what it is to live life outside of the pain they currently experience. So God, would you give them a window to your grace and mercy? Would you show them the goodness that you have extended to them in the person of Jesus? Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son Jesus, that they might come to know him as Savior and Lord. And we pray for your continued work and investment in their lives. And Father, we pray for the Christian today who is struggling with relationships, they're struggling physically, they're struggling mentally and emotionally, that you would renew yourself to them, giving them a fresh encounter of your presence. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.